we have all heard that substance abuse does not discriminate, which is true. We've also heard me say many times that no matter where you have been or what you've done, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it. We're primarily going to be speaking of the latter today. And I've heard of and or worked with many individuals over the years who've spent many years abusing drugs and then quitting. Following their abstinence, they did big things, great things, and made a positive impact on the world. Now, I don't ever say that anybody is better than other people, but we do have a guest today who found methamphetamine at a young age, got clean in her 30s, and eventually became a federal administrative law judge. Now, I'm excited for this meeting today because this isn't something you hear often and honestly something I've never actually heard of. Now, I'm sure that there are other judges who have played around with drugs while young and maybe even had a problem with it, but how many are ever going to admit to it? She's currently retired, but has just released a book titled I love the name of this, From Junkie to Judge. So please stay tuned. My name is Eric McCoy, and you are listening to High While Clean. Please help support our channel. All we ask is that you subscribe to our channels. This helps our shows uh, continue to grow. And please send me feedback, any thoughts you, you have. And I have been honored to have so many amazing guests since we started the show from all walks of life. And today we have a guest whose childhood was sadly very similar to many that struggle with substance abuse, trauma, sexual abuse, which push many to want to find a way to step out of the reality that they're in and find a more comfortable world that can seem easier to possibly deal with. Now, before I introduce our guest, and trust me when I say I may be more excited about what we're about to discuss and others for multiple reasons, and I want to let our listeners know that this show has been designed to bring about genuine conversations that have no preset plans, no preset questions. And as those who listen to our show are probably aware of, I first entered the world of recovery in 1989 after being arrested twice and given the option of two years in California Youth Authority or 30 days in rehab and probation, of course. You know, and kind of speculate which I chose. I was 16 years old at the time, and I went through a 30-day residential and told that the 12-step program was going to be my solution. Now, 16-year-old making it in recovery is tough, and I'd love to say that I was successful, but I obviously wasn't. <laughs> Alcohol and weed was my start, and once I found meth, my addiction would speed up. No pun intended. And my guest today has certain things that we can relate to, and specifically addiction. Uh, we were both IV meth users that eventually got clean. And this is where our paths separated for a while, but has merged back together in certain ways. Uh, she strives to help people, which has been my direction for most of the last 20 years. Uh, I wrote a book titled Pain, Failure, and Misery Are the Stepping Stones to Success to Help Inspire, Motivate, and remind everyone that no matter where you have been or what you have done, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it. Now, my guest has a book that is coming out that's titled From Junkie to Judge. Love the name. 
Our guest today is Mary Beth O'Connor, who became captive by the same substance as myself until she was 32 years old. And six years into her recovery, she, and this is where we can kind of say that we separated a lot, she went to law school and she worked at a large firm in Silicon Valley, then litigated class actions for the federal government. And then in 2014, she was appointed a federal administrative law judge. How cool is this? In which she retired in 2020. And based on my research on Mary, I see so many similarities with our thinking. There is no one-size-fits-all philosophy. And again, I haven't spoken much to Mary before this, but the one thing I think is very important for all of us is a support system. Now, it's my, not my job to tell you what that is. Um, I want to thank you, Mary, very much for coming on the show. Thank you. And I am a New Jersey girl, so it is actually Mary Beth, but um, oh. happy to be here. Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Beth. Okay. Um, well, hey, so yeah, this is very exciting to me. And I had, and just so you know, you know, for, you know, where we kind of said we sort of separated. I'm assuming you didn't get arrested near addiction. Um, well, that no, no, I was arrested when I was 18. I was arrested okay. at 18, um, but I was only arrested that one time, and and it was for meth and uh, hypodermics, uh, and this was like in the in 1979, and mm -hmm. I think things were a little more lenient maybe than they would be today, but because it's a small town, they knew I hadn't been in trouble with the police before. They gave me a deal where I pled guilty to a disorderly person offense, which is in New Jersey below a misdemeanor. And they gave me in my sentencing that if I didn't get arrested again for three years, I could get my record expunged. And so that's what I did. Yeah. But gotcha. no, I, I had a brief stint in jail and I, I was arrested that one time. Okay. I was thinking about that with now, obviously you're coming out with a book. How open were you when you were a judge about this? So, I, I mean, throughout my professional life, I got sober, as you say, at 32, and I, I worked my way back up the corporate ladder because when I was using, I had worked my way down <laughs> because I couldn't hold a job. And I never really talked about my substance use disorder or my trauma. I mean, or any of those personal things at work. I really put work in sort of a separate box. And I might have work friends, but I, it was at, at a certain level, you know, not at sort of that deep sharing level. Um, so the first time that I ever actually disclosed to an employer that I was in recovery was when I was going on to the board for Life Ring Secular Recovery when I was a judge and I had to run it through ethics. And so I said, you know, I think at the time I had like 25 years or 23 and I, I was vague, you know, 23 years of sobriety. Here's what I'll be doing for Life Ring. And I didn't say anything else. And I'm guessing that they assumed alcohol, but they never asked. And I never said. <laughs> <laughs> so it was after I retired that I was really able to open up a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would kind of be a negative, especially as a federal judge, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it shouldn't be, it shouldn't matter when if I, you know, you have 23 years or whatever I had at the time, it should be irrelevant and it really was at that point, but you don't know how people will take it and I do in part talk about my story openly now because I know not everyone has that option because they have valid fears about repercussions, especially professional repercussions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, now one of the things I really liked about when I was reading up on your stuff was you, and I think we have similar philosophies, whatever works, works for people. And, you know, I am not a 12 step person myself. Um, I did do it, you know, way back early on. Um, and you are now on the board of the life ring. Is that correct? Yeah. Life ring secular recovery and she recovers foundation as well. Okay. Do you want to explain real quick what that is for our listeners? Sure. So, um, so for me, when I went into rehab, they told me too that 12 steps was the one and only way, which I knew was not going to work for me because not only was I an atheist, but I didn't like the powerless idea or turning my will and my life over. And so when I 
I, I got, I tried to make myself fit as best I could. Um, for example, I went through the steps to see if there was anything I could use. Mm -hmm. So for powerless, I didn't agree with powerless, but what I decided was I could agree that Mary Beth is powerless to moderate. <laughs> like there is no moderating for me, right? Like I can't do that. Um, yeah. but, but when I got out, I actually went looking for options. Were they telling me the truth that there was only 12 steps and, um, you know, it's 94. So there was no Google. So I went to the library. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And I found options and I found women for sobriety, which still exists. And I actually, I, I speak at their conferences and then I found, um, rational recovery, which today is smart recovery. Mm -hmm. And I found SOS, which basically today is life ring, life ring secular recovery broke off of SOS in 95. Mm -hmm. Um, and so life rings philosophy in is around the three S's we call it sobriety, secularity, and self-help. And some of the core ideas are mutual support, like all the other peer support mm -hmm. groups, rational decision making, and each um, each person being responsible for her own recovery. Mm. And so those are some of the key ideas. Yeah. And there was also a She Recovery. Mm -hmm. She Recovers, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. So She Recovers Foundation um, is in, in a slightly different space. So she, I have a, a significant trauma history as well as a PTSD, anxiety history and uh, other issues. And She Recovers is around the idea that everyone is recovering from something, but also the reality that women with substance use disorders almost always have other things that they need to address as well. Mm -hmm. So in She Recovers, 75% uh, of the members have a substance use disorder, but it's also about recovery from trauma, recovery from mental health issues, other behavioral disorders like eating disorders or gambling, recovery from grief or cutting or overwork or all of those things. So it's one place where you can talk about all of it. You don't have to sort of silo it out where here I talk about my substance use disorder and over here I talk about my eating disorder and over there I talk about my trauma. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when I teach about, and I, and I talk about those alternatives, even, even, you know, the women smart recovery. I love smart recovery personally. Um, I've never actually really done it, but I love Albert Ellis and I know the philosophy of rationally motive behavioral therapy, um, which is stuff that I teach also. Um, and I think the best thing about some of these other programs versus Alcoholics Anonymous is just like you had said, Alcoholics Anonymous is just alcohol, you know, and smart recovery can encompass anything. And again, all behavioral addictions as well. And that's, I think, one of the biggest differences that I always got frustrated with too over the years. Yeah, well, and the reality is in, in LifeRing, for example, and She Recovers, we actually have a lot of members who either are concurrently in 12 steps or did 12 steps and then decided it wasn't giving them everything they need and they moved mm -hmm. on. But both LifeRing and She Recovers um, respect the multiple paths. And in, in uh, She Recovers, I, a significant percentage of She Recovers members also do 12 steps. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people, more people today do what I did, which is mix and match, right? I mean, I did to, what I call a hybrid program. I pulled ideas from different places. I never ever followed one specific program. And today it's more common. I'm, and I'm glad to see that, that either people do it, maybe not always from the beginning, but as they move further into their recovery and their needs change or their ideas about what would be a good fit, or they just want to learn about other ways, other options, other approaches, other ideas that might be useful. Um, a lot more people do mix and match today than they used to. And I'm really happy to see that. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are, but California has, and I, I'm assuming it's a nationwide thing, but medically assisted treatment, MAP programs, like maintenance programs or Suboxone maintenance, sub Subutech. And out in California, we've got a lot of those programs that are opening up um, all over the place. And I don't know what you think about that, but I'll tell you one of the frustrating things, I was the director for a program, uh, I want to say this was three or four years ago, and we had a MAP program there. I used to love to go in and do groups, usually in the evening with this group of clientele. And one of the most interesting things that I always heard was they were trying to find a program uh, as far as self-help goes. They would go to 12-step programs. They would get a sponsor. The sponsors would say, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody. Um, you're not clean until you get off the medications. And that's frustrating. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, Lifering's definition of sobriety is um, that you are not taking uh, any, you know, mood altering drugs, except if they are medically indicated and taken as prescribed, that counts as sobriety and lifering. Yeah. And then she recovers, even um, harm reduction is, is an appropriate yeah. um, ta uh, a technique. And many of the members are either exclusively harm reduction or using harm reduction as part of their path toward long-term abstinence. And mm -hmm. so those programs are much more open to those ideas. Yeah. yeah. And it's crazy because medication-assisted treatment has fabulous data. I mean, for mm -hmm. opioid use disorders and alcohol use disorders, the increase in people's ability to either stay absent or at least um, have fewer uh, recurrences, a smoother path, it's really strong. Now for us, our meth, you know, stimulants, no, no medication yet that's made it through the studies, I, but they got nothing for us. No, not yet, but they are. There's a study. There are two studies on two different drugs, but we'll see. But yeah, yeah. right now, nothing for stimulants, but for opiates and alcohol. I mean, if that was my issue today, absolutely. I would take the medication. The data is very, very strong. Wrong. yeah i just did a show recent so i have a radio show too called hot topics and i just recently did one on the uh injection sites yes the safe injection sites and it's something that i am fighting for um our governor newsom i i'm in california can't so my, guy. Yeah. <laughs> but you know they just they just you know went through they passed this thing that they're going to approve it and of course he veto vetoes it yes and one of his reasoning is that he, the unintended consequences, right? He goes, unintended consequences. All I could think of is that we know what the consequences are. <laughs> I mean, California had 10,000 deaths yeah. last year. That's the consequences. And to me, it is absolutely absurd. You know, people say, oh, it, it's encouraging drug use. No, it's not. They're going to do it anyways. I mean, we know that, you know, if you've got the dope, you, they don't provide the drugs for you. You have to bring it yourself. They provide clean needles. And, um, you know, what are we enabling? Uh, life, um, HIV, and, and hep C prevention? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer in support of their safe injection site. And, um, and, the, and the reality is when they say we don't have the data, there is 30 years of data from other countries, right? 200, and 200 places or whatever around, yes. and, you know, and New York, right? New York yes, has Yes, New two, York I has think. it now. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but but the data is the very data is very good, and the reality is, I mean, I I know why it can seem on its face to be an odd idea, but the truth is, it's not just it's good for the individual because it's in a safe environment, and if they overdose, they can be saved. But it's also actually good for the community because people aren't shooting drugs in the street anymore, right? I mean, they go inside, and it it reduces hospital expense radically because people aren't being taken to the ER, you know, for overdoses constantly, which which cost San Francisco a lot of money. Um, and I do always um, acknowledge that for me, I used the needle exchange when I was shooting drugs in the early 90s because of HIV. Um, the needle exchanges were starting up. And in San Francisco, it wasn't legal, but it was tolerated. I mean, the police would just drive on by, you know. And so they had a needle exchange in the early 90s in San Francisco. I think it was two days a week in two different locations. And it was I don't know, it was probably privately funded, but San Francisco just chose to ignore it um, for public health reasons, you know, because it reduced the transmission of diseases. And I got sober, I didn't have HIV, I didn't have hep C, I didn't have, you know, any of the bloodborne diseases. And I, I really do attribute part of it was to the needle exchange. So harm reduction is important. And I know one of the big complaints on the needle exchange was they were finding more needles in different places. But that's the thing that this type of program would actually eliminate because you'd use a needle, then you'd leave it there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know? That's true. Not giving you a bunch of syringes to take on your way. I use the needle exchange too. You know, um, I also sadly, as most of us do, um, you know, you, you run to a place to where you aren't able to get one. Yeah. And so you try everything possible to do the bleach clean or whatever. <laughs> and, and luckily I never got it either. Thank God. Right. I know. I mean, I was really relieved when they did my blood work when I went into recovery, you know, because I mean, I use the needle exchange. I wasn't a hundred percent at not sharing needles. I tried to avoid it, but that didn't mean that I always did. And I also was lucky my my early shooting years in New Jersey was right before HIV came out. And so, you know, by the time I got to California, 
I snorted for a while before I started shooting again. And by the, I, I, by then I knew about HIV. So in other words, I wasn't in a place where HIV was prevalent before we knew what it was. And that was just pure dumb luck on my part. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you, um, and you kind of brought this up, the title of your book, From Junkie to Judge. What's the What's the real meaning there for you? So I chose it purposefully. Um, I mean, first of all, I love the alliteration, right? But yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> but um, but I really feel like it, it covers the arc. But I but I chose it in part because of this. I feel like junkie um, is a word with a lot of negative social connotations, right? There's sort of a hierarchy of drug use in America. Like it's better to be addicted to alcohol than meth. It's better to pop pills than to shoot up. And I was an IV meth addict, which is sort of at the low end of that hierarchy of what society views as the hierarchy. And society often views intravenous meth addicts as sort of irredeemable. You know, you can't be saved. It's too late for you. Um, but on the other hand, judge has that positive social resonance, right? And so I I really feel, I, I mean, you're not supposed to be in America's mind or a lot of America. I don't want to um, overgeneralize, but to, you're not supposed to be able to do go from junkie to judge. But the fact that I did, I, for me, it's a shorthand way of saying that we all can be anything in recovery you don't know and who we are in the middle of our active addiction has nothing to do with who we're going to become if we can find a stable recovery yeah yeah and that's what i i believe that 100 my uh, my life when we obviously we talked about the separation you went to law school <laughs> um i repeatedly got arrested you know i was looking at 2002 i was looking at 15 years in prison Ooh. um but the and I, and I talk about that in my book too, but the, and one of the, the, you know, my title again, pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. And I believe that, um, our greatest lessons in life come from our greatest pain in life. And I've always tried to get across to people because I had a program in Anaheim for a while and we did alternative sentencing and that was our big mm -hmm. thing and tried to get across to people that you know, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it within reason. Obviously, you have to live in the real world. You know, I'm a six time convicted felon, probably not going to be able to become a federal judge. <laughs> but I don't want to anyway, so I'm, I'm good with that, you know. <laughs> but um, but I think and you're such a great example of that you were 34, 32 when I got sober, 32 when you got sober. Um, so you definitely used for a lot of years. Yes. And, and you went through a residential yeah, I went inpatient and I was actually inpatient for five months when I, it was a 90 day commitment, but you know, they up to six months and I ended up staying for five months. So I was in a long term and I really do think I needed it. 30 days wasn't going to be sufficient for me. As we said in my day, I was tore up from the floor up, you know, like I needed um, to be away. I needed to have a sort of a, a separation between my life and, and recovery. And I was just I was just debilitated. I mean, on every level, even physically, I was debilitated. So it was good for me to go inpatient. And I was lucky that I had that option in California at the time. It, I actually was able to collect disability while I was in rehab, the state program, which I don't think you can do today. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's like one of those um, fortuitous uh, uh, situations that I, I was able to take advantage of that just aren't always available for people. Yeah. How did your body look? Were you just tore up? At, at... I mean, you know, I was really struggling with abscesses and infections and I was getting, you know, I was sick all the, even if I wasn't, I was just, you know, sluggish, constantly sluggish, even when I was using, I was actually gaining weight, even though I was shooting speed all the time, mm. because I was putting so little food in my body. I think I had re, you know, reformulated my use of calories somehow. Um, but I was, I had, you know, track marks and bruises and abscesses everywhere. And I was really feeling just ill. I, I could barely function. I mean, I really, when I lost my last job and I remember I was a Berkeley graduate <laughs> with good, with good grades. And my last job was word processing before I went into rehab. Um, and I couldn't even get my resume together to try again at that point. Like that's how, that's how I lacked energy to even put pen to paper. I was completely debilitated at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I was 130 pounds and I, and I'm six, four. Oh gosh. That's crazy skinny. Yeah. I was pretty emaciated, you know, you know, meth, um, 
has changed a lot, I think, over the years, um, you know, back when we were doing it and we called it crank back then, you know? Yes, we called it crank. Yes. <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you, I and I've thought so much on this, you know, with our youth and our kids. Um, you know, we've got kids that are just dying left and right, you know, out there. Fentanyl is being found in meth today. Fentanyl is being found in coke, being found in weed. Um, you know, so it really doesn't even matter which substance you do. You can drop dead um, the first time you do it, potentially. And I've thought a lot about, and I've really tried very hard to, and I've even met with some of our state legislatures. Down, I'm in L.A. County. Um, you know, in this area, talking about our youth and talking about our kids. And of course, all the parents out there don't want to talk about drugs in school or talk about sex because it's going to make them want to do it. I mean, really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I had a lot of sex and I don't think I was ever taught about it. So I, I figured <laughs> it out. Right. <laughs> um, but I think it is absolutely crazy, you know, and I think and I've always I've thought so hard on this, on the tactics that we've always used. You know, you can go back to Nancy Reagan, just say no. You know, you kind of failed to take into account the mind's desire to want to understand. You know, meth is a tough one because when, you know, I, I remember when I first did it, you know, you, you, you can focus, you can concentrate, you feel good, you got energy. What's the bad, right? <laughs> and of course, we got to learn that down the road, but at that point in time, you don't really have any idea of what tolerance looks like or what that means and that you're going to have to do a lot of it. And drugs are fun when you choose to, but when you have to, that fun goes away. And I've thought about this a lot. I don't work with kids and I really, cause of my, I'm a, can't work with the youth cause of my background, but I've thought about wanting to really figure out ways I'd love to go talk at schools. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really lacking is that when you have somebody goes in and talks to kids and whether you lie or they just think you're lying, you're going to lose those people. There's no rapport that's ever built. Um, my title of my, my show, High Wall Clean, you know, is, and I tell clients this that I work with, I said, let's keep getting high. But let's do it clean. You know, I want to change that whole meaning behind highness because highness is not a property of drugs. It's a property of people. You don't get high on drugs. You get high on your own chemicals. And so with that, we can still get high. We just do it differently. There's no side effects. It's free and it's legal. I don't go to jail for it. <laughs> I've, thought, I've thought about this and I'd love to go into a school, you know, and just start out with, hey, just want to let everybody know I love to get high. And I still get high today. If you go in with that tactic, right, you're going to open up the ears of people. You'll grab the people that have already used drugs. So the ones that have already done it and they're going like, drugs are great. What are you talking about? You're full of shit, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, and you'll open up the ears of people. You know, it's it reminds me. I mean, I think you're right. You can't you have to be forthright. Part of what I, I do acknowledge, like in the book, is in the beginning, drugs served a good purpose. You know, first of all, they were fun, but also they alleviated my stress and my pain. And it seemed like a really good idea at the time. But what you're talking about reminds me of a conversation I had with my nieces and, and nephew, because I was, a, you know, had an addiction, their mother, their father. And when they were, um, you know, getting toward their early teen years, I sat down with them and I told them, look, I'm not saying that alcohol can't be fun or smoking pot can't be fun or weed, as they say now. Um, I said, but you are at high risk. You know, other people may be able to do and get away with it. But your odds are high that you're not going to be able to get away with it, you know, and also they grew up in a stressful environment. So whether it's biological or environmental, they were sort of um, primed to it to at least a certain degree to be at risk from that. And so I wasn't going to go in there and say, oh, it was all horrible, horrible. Your friends, they're not having a good. No, it, it can be fun. But what is your risk? You know, you yeah. have to understand your risk and watch out for whether or not you're starting to have a problematic relationship with a substance if you're going to try it. Yeah, I mean, I, I see, and I, and I think it's a good educational thing, but I just see, you know, even people that get home from work every day and they got to go drink a bunch of beer and they're not really happy people, you know, and right. I, I see that just in even, even what we would call the normies for me to have fun. I've got to drink this or smoke this or whatever it is that you're doing. 
And they really, I think a lot of these people really lack the true genuine highness. That's kind of what I'm talking about, you know? That, that's true. I mean, one of the nice modern ideas is looking at um, a substance use problems on a spectrum, right? And so some people who don't technically check the boxes for substance use disorder still have a problematic relationship with substances, if only because it's um, interfering with their connection to themselves, with their connection to their feelings, and with dealing with whatever problems are in their lives. Instead, they're using the substance to avoid it, even if it's not, you know, you check the right three out of five boxes and you qualify as alcohol use disorder, it still can be interfering with you living your best life. Yeah. And if it's interfering with you living your best life, then I would hope that you would find a way to be motivated to figure out how to, how to, how to move forward in a more positive way, or like yeah. you say, how to have more positive experiences that are going to give you the enjoyment. But people like that, I don't think they're doing it to be happy high the way you mean high right it's not really about that it's either a pain avoidance conflict exactly. avoidance yes <laughs> but the thing on it is this so you know i'll do exercises with clients sometimes and we'll do impulse control right and i'll ask them you know okay every action in our life has a consequence there's positive and negative consequences to everything we do and those again that think about those typically make better decisions <clears throat> and i had a girl in there and this was real recent too and and she was saying that, you know, I like to use because it numbs me and I don't have to feel, right? And I looked at her and I said, so you don't like to be happy. Good point. Right? <laughs> Good and point. she said the same thing. She's like, and I really thought about it like that because it's true though. It's like, you know, we want to say, oh, I want to numb the bad feelings, right? <clears throat> the anger, the hurt, the sadness, but you're also going to numb your good feelings, you know, the joy, the happiness, the contentment, even. That's true. I mean, you, you can't, you can't selectively numb feelings. It doesn't work that way. And the other thing is when you're in that cycle of, you know, using, let's just say alcohol, you're using your alcohol and then, you know, you're sort of hung over in the morning from your alcohol. And then you're, you're never really in a place of being centered and being connected with who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's going to create all kinds of other problems in your, how do you make good decisions in your life? If you've got this, um, this block between you and yourself, when you're mm -hmm. with a substance, you, you can't make good choices. You can't act in your own best interest. You can't resolve anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we lose ourselves. Yes. I mean, we, we, there's a complete disconnect of my book that I, the first, <laughs> the first line of my book is I killed that motherfucker. <laughs> and, you know, and I was talking about myself. Uh, it's true. Because I lost myself and. I did custody time and stuff. And I put in there too, that, you know, I found real freedom when I was locked up in a jail and it had nothing to do with anything external. Freedom comes from within. I, re I was getting transferred. I remember, and I don't remember what this, me and this guy were talking about, but I started laughing and I hadn't laughed like that in years. And it was like a genuine, a real, like tears coming down. Laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was powerful. And you noticed, I mean, it's good that, you know, you noticed that that's what was happening. That's really useful information to have. So you're, uh, so the book real quick, I want to come back to that real quick. Um, and so it's, a, uh, it's kind of an autobiography, I'm assuming, right? Kind of your yes. story. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I, I really wanted to do a couple things. So it, the full title is From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And one of the things I wanted to do was to show how it was that I became a drug addict at, you know, in my early teens and was shooting meth at 17 years old. So I do go through the trauma and the neglect that led up to that point to sort of to show how it played out. Um, and then the other thing on the other end of it that I wanted to do was show what re recovery looks like, because sometimes I feel in memoir, it's like I went to a couple meetings and everything was great. And, you know, that's just not how recovery works. And so I do have almost um, like 30 percent of the book is the first couple of years of my recovery, including the challenges of trying to build a secular recovery plan, one that was individualized to me. But also I talk about the trauma recovery as well and the interplay with that and my substance use disorder recovery. So it does really go sort of from 
birth, because even that was problematic up to when I'm 35, um, which is three years into my sobriety. And then a, a quick explanation of how I actually did um, become a judge. <laughs> yeah. now, now, you were administrative. What, what's the actual, what, what, what did you do as a federal judge? So I was in, I mean, there's all kinds of judges. And for me, I was, I worked for the federal government and I was an administrative law judge. And for the federal government, you work for a specific agency when you're an ALJ. And so I worked for the social security administration. I was a judge basically for the social security administration. What does that mean? What, I mean, well, you're Mostly I was, um, it was cases against the agency. So mostly, most of the cases were disability cases, people that had applied for disability benefits and had been denied, um, denied twice. Oh. And then at the third level, they actually get a hearing before a judge. And that was me. And they can bring witnesses and there can be doctor testimony and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that was most of my caseload. People who thought that they were disabled and they had been denied benefits. You were the one that said yes or no. Yes, I was the I was the third level. They'd already been denied twice by the time they got to me, and I was the only time they got a hearing. You know, I was the only time they got to appear before a judge. And and it was actually interesting because most of the people that appeared before me had never been before a judge before, mm -hmm. um, and so there was always that nervousness. I mean, most to us and most of our friends have been to you know to court for something, right? <laughs> but for the general population, that's not really true. So it, it was a it was an important moment in their lives. And I was making an important decision that had a real impact on them. So, you know, it was, a, it was weighty in that way. Decision-making is, is tough when you have people's lives, you know, in the balance like that. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of went a little full circle myself because when I, I was saying I had a program in Anaheim um, where we did alternative sentencing and I went out and developed some amazing relationships with judges. And these were all criminal, you know, defense criminal judges and also got to know a lot of the district attorneys. Um, there's one judge, particularly Judge Bromberg. I actually had him on my podcast too, Judge Bromberg. He didn't have a drug problem or at least didn't identify as having one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool, you know, and, and I would go to court for people with people to try to get them into rehab versus, you know, having to go back to prison a lot of these people spent half their life in prison. What do you think about legalizing drugs? I'm for it, 100%. I mean, the countries that have done it, you know, like Portugal, they've had really good success on multiple fronts. Oregon is decriminalized and there. So we'll have U.S. data coming soon. But so far, the data is very consistent with what we've seen in other countries that have done it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's ridiculous that we say on one hand, oh, it's a medical condition. Oh, it's a disease or a brain disorder, however you want to categorize it. But then we're criminalizing people over it. Mm -hmm. And the other reality is I really know that I was privileged. I, I only got arrested once. I carried meth on me pretty much every day for mm -hmm. 15 years and got pulled over by the police you know, multiple times for like traffic violations, looking tweaky if they would have looked close. But you know, white middle-class woman in her little yeah. Nova um, and dressed in a work outfit and nobody ever searched me. Nobody ever looked that close at me as they might have other people. And so I am very aware that under other circumstances or with uh, different color skin, I most likely would have had a much longer criminal record than I ended up with. Absolutely. When you look at Congress, so the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association and Congress identify alcoholism as a disease. American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association not Congress, identifies drug addiction as a disease. Explain the difference. <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and there is an interesting discussion about does it categorize as a disease or is it a brain disorder or a learning disorder or some habit gone amok, but it really, in a way, doesn't matter. I, I mean, I was always aware that my brain was driving this, you know, that my brain had been um, basically taken over by my, by my substance use disorder. But for me too, because I started so young, um, it's funny because I uh, was talking the other day about how when I got sober, I wasn't sure my brain had returned, had had recovered, fully recovered from the trauma. And then I realized, no, my brain never had a chance to even become the brain it would have been because mm -hmm. the trauma was so early and so deep. And so was the drug use. And so all of that had a deep impact on me. But I, I always viewed it as a type of brain disorder. I, I don't care what box you put it in. That's what was driving me. Yeah. Yeah, I teach, you know, clients, um, you know, the like the disease thing, I teach them the be, you know, it's a behavior, whatever. 
I always end up with at the end of it, I always tell them, I go, to me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know? I mean, whether, whether I, you know, if I go out and relapse, <laughs> if I got a disease, if it's a behavior, if it's a moral failing, if it's whatever, the same thing's going to happen. <laughs> right. And so far, they haven't shown that um, how you categorize it would impact how you treat it. Right. And for me, that's what's important is how do we effectively treat this? How do we help people find the path out and forward and uh, and handle it? And so far, there's nothing in the discussion that's indicated that the treatment would change over what we have as best practices. I don't mean, get, mean that we have perfect treatment or that we'll never find a better way. I mean, hopefully we will. But um, right now the treatments are the same, no matter what box you would put the, um, the, yeah. the de definition in. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's getting even worse because insurance pays. So right. Insurance says what you have to do. Um, you know, you, you can't step too far outside the box, which sucks. I've, yeah. I've always been a big think outside the box person. You can't really do it. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the need for people to be able to fit into the right box to get even the minimal access to treatment that insurance gives to them is really something critical. And you don't want to take that away without making sure that they don't lose the benefits of it. You're absolutely right. I think the greatest failing, you know, in recovery is aftercare. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, there's, you know, people do great in treatment. A lot of them do. You know, they do wonderful. They follow the rules. They participate. Then once they leave, that's where I think the greatest failing is in recovery. I mean, definitely once they leave is a problem. I think for me, that's why I stayed in as long as I did, because I felt like I really needed it. Faces and Voices of Recovery. Yes. Um, a great organization. I love, the, I love their uh, study they did, too, because 40% of people in recovery have never gone to rehab nor a 12-step program. Great. That's true. I mean, a lot of people, we, more people get sober on their own than tends to get acknowledged. Um, and a lot of people do it in a lot of different ways. I, I mean, I absolutely support 12 steps when it's the right fit for somebody. Sure. My only complaint with 12 steps is if they ever say if we're the, we're the only option or we're better because neither one of those things is true, but a lot of people really benefit from yeah. the structure of 12 steps. Like life ring isn't as structured. We have, a workbook and we have, you know, meetings, but we don't, it's just not as, um, as formulaic. It's really more about an individualized plan. You figuring out what's going to work for you. We can help, we can offer suggestions, we can give you a workbook, but you have to decide. And some people prefer to have a formal structure. And so it, it's just part of it is figuring out what paradigm works best for me? How do I learn best? Where would I feel most supported? You know, what philosophically, what group feels like they um, think like I do. Or what I tell new people is read the book, read up on the various options. One or two of those are going to read like, those are my people, you know, go where it seems like your people are going to be. And that's going to give you that the best is. chance. Yeah. Wherever that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, um, how big is the organization? I mean, how available, is it all online? So like before COVID, um, we had around 200 meetings in the U.S. every week, and we have them in other countries as well. But with, with COVID, we mostly went online, and we still are primarily online, in part because a lot of the facilities were medical facilities, and they haven't let us back yet. Mm. Um, on the other hand, our uh, membership really went up exponentially during COVID when people were looking for online options, and they started doing research, and so they came across alternatives to 12 Steps, and some of them wanted that. But we do hope to go back to more face-to-face -face meetings, but we're always going to have a strong online presence. We were online before, and we will continue to have a strong online presence. And She Recovers is primarily online, and they're large. They have about 325,000 members, okay. um, but, um, but a lot of it is online. But we do have local chapters. We have conferences, retreats, different kinds of events. So it's a mix. Now, Life Ring is men and women, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. What's the difference between that and uh, what was the other one? Secular Organizations for Sobriety, I think. So um, LifeRing broke off of SOS in 95, and SOS is just very small at this point. There are only a few meetings around the country. So LifeRing is sort of the surviving entity of the two. But SOS does exist, and um, it, you know it's a secular option as well. And now that it's online, there are probably a few meetings online. But pre-COVID, I know they were down to, I think, under a dozen meetings in the country. And that is the reality when it comes to self-help. I mean, if you were to say availability, the 12-step program is really the it's everywhere. Um, and a lot of the 
clientele that we work with, I would say more often than not, they do get engaged in the 12 step program, but we do have those that I know are not going to do it. Those are the ones that I love to find something else that works. Smart recovery is always the one that, um, those that are not into the 12 steps seem to engage a little bit better, um, with, although I tell them the same thing you said that the, even if you do the 12 step program, don't stop there. Cause there's so many things you're not going to get from the 12 step program. And, um, and I like what you had said too, is that, you know, people can do different ones. You know, I, I've told many of them that I think you guys should do like the, the, the principles of smart recovery and the 12 step program. Right. I, I mean, for life, a lot of members, if they want the face to face when we like, we never had a meeting in Montana, you know, so people might go to a 12 step meeting to have local connections, but then would they would do our online meeting for and they would philosophically follow the life ring program, but they wanted that in person connection. And so it's good for people to mix and match. I, I mean, like I said, my whole program was always mix and match. I started out that way because I, I couldn't follow the 12 steps that they were telling me, but I went through and looked for ideas I could use. I didn't just throw it out, you know, completely. I, I went through the big book and the NA text looking for concepts that would be helpful to me. And I used some of those ideas. Um, and then I just pulled from other places. Uh, so it just depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, women for sobriety, I'll tell you one of the things, um, one of the differences to me is uh, when I when you're in a 12-step meeting, you say, you know, I'm Mary Beth, I'm an addict, right? That's your introduction. But in WFS, you know what the introduction is? It's I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. Nice. And so that it's the other programs usually have some one of those self-empowerment ideas at the core, something along those lines, which just felt better for me. It was just a better fit for me. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't agree with the powerlessness either. You know, I mean, I think uh but even in the in the real aspect, because I'll have clients that'll ask about that too, and even the ones that are like engaged are going to do the twelve steps. And I always tell them that it does say we admitted we were powerless, so it's actually past tense, you know. <laughs> but when I'm clean and sober, I have power, and I think that's what everything's about. That's what this whole thing is about: personal power, um, finding myself, loving myself, caring about myself, self-esteem. Um, you know, whatever issues that I've had to deal with in my life, I deal with those, work through them. And that also empowers me more. Hey, I wanted to ask you a question. And I was just thinking about this. So you, you know, being a meth user for so many years, what was your feelings and thoughts when they said, okay, here's your, you're a judge. How did you feel? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I would think about it for me. I'd be like, damn, <laughs> you have no fucking idea. <laughs> well, I will say that's when I started thinking about the book, because it wasn't a moment of how the heck did I do this? You know, yeah. how did I go from from being a teenage meth addict and really not getting sober until I was 32? It's not like I got sober at 20 or something. Um, and get here. And so it was definitely a time of reflection about how, you know, the path, but it was also about the trauma recovery, right? Because that was actually a big part of what I had to deal with once I got sober. And I wouldn't have been able to handle law school if I didn't get that, you know, at least somewhat under control because I was just too, um, too anxious. You know, I had too much PTSD, hmm. um, but it was definitely a time of you know, kind of a little bit of stand tall, you know, look what yeah. you did, you know, yeah. kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that would just be the coolest thing. <laughs> just for I a day. A picture. I, I, I think, think it'd just be fun for a day, you know. <laughs> Judge for a day, yeah. <laughs> just to hit the gavel, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even going, you know, getting to law school and doing all of that, it's, it's, you know, but the truth is what I, being a judge is a nice title and it was a, a moment of, of pride and reflection, but the reality is it's not the most important part of my recovery, right? right? The right. most important part of my recovery is that I'm not obsessed with my, you know, meth use. I'm not living in chaos. I don't, I don't make every situation worse by my own poor choices and ridiculous behavior. Um, and I'm able to like be a wife and a aunt and a sister and a friend and show up. If I tell you I'm going to be there, I come. It's like a whole new Good. pattern. So yeah, the, it's a nice title and it is meaningful to me, yeah. but it's not day to day, the most important part of my recovery. It's just a role. I mean, yes. that's, a, that's all that is. 
Is that, and that's another thing that I always try to get people to separate. Number one is we're not our behaviors, you know, so people, you know, that define themselves by their behaviors, they're, when you label yourself, you limit yourself. And so I think that's so, which also goes back to that idea that every time I say, my name's Eric and I'm an addict, my name's Eric and I'm an addict, I'm literally just re, what do addicts do? They use, right? And so I'm literally just reinforcing the fact that I should be using drugs because that's what I am, right? <laughs> and um, I hate that, you know, I, I, I tell clients that too. And I, and I tell them, I go, look, I'm not telling you not to do it. But I said, something to think about, you know, and some people will then turn to like, I'm a recovering addict, which is better because that says I'm doing something. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, I really felt like I needed to say it over and over and sort of beat it in my brain. But even by six months, I thought it just wasn't capturing the essence of who I was. I was saying it like it was the most, it was the core of my being and and it wasn't anymore. And so it wasn't serving me. And I use it as an example of why what you need in recovery or what helps can change over time. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it was helpful. At some point, it wasn't helpful to me anymore. So I didn't use it anymore. I moved on to new terminology. And um, it's important to think about the words we use. That It's like junkie. I would never say that about somebody else. I say it about myself to just show that that arc. Because that's just a label. That's just a label, too. Correct. Know? It's just a label. And mm-hmm. it's a label that um, that has some social meaning. And that's why I chose to use it. But I, I love it. I think it's a, it's a fantastic <laughs> title. I do. You know, I think it, it'll grab people. Yes. And I like will say, to... <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. And my first chapter is the first time I shot meth because I wanted it to be clear. Like, I mean, junkie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now you were and I know you I, again, I've done a little research. So you were molested by your father. My stepfather. Um, So, I mean, I had multiple sexual assaults. I was molested by my stepfather. I had some, you know, well, in today's consent world, they would be considered sexual assaults. I certainly had um, sex with adult men when I was still 16 and younger. So, you know, that's problematic, although I didn't think of it that way at the time. Um, And I did have two multi-assailant rapes, one when I was 17 and one when I was 19. So I had a, you know, series of sexual assaults and um, all of that was, you know, added to the impetus to just keep using, keep using, keep using. Yeah. And obviously you were able to work through that. Took a a long time. Took a long time. A lot of therapy. (laughs) Uh, individual therapy, group therapy, like a, a group of women with trauma histories. I was on um, anti-anxiety medication for a, a number of years. I mean, it took me longer to get my PTSD anxiety under control than it took for me to get my substance use disorder under control a lot longer. Yeah. And even now, um, I still say I'm just mostly recovered from the trauma, right? I mean, I'm, I'm mostly recovered, but it still shows up and I still have some, I just... I don't have trust that things are going to work out. I'm always, you know, part, I, I have a negative inclination towards situations, but um, my anxiety is a lot less intense and it doesn't last nearly as long. I don't cycle and cycle mm-hmm. and cycle. So it's much, much better. And you've, and, and again, you realize that we don't have to do this alone. I mean, that's the premise, I think, of the whole thing with all the, the organizations that you're a part of, I mean, 12 Step, any of those. That we don't have to do this alone. We have a group of people. Um, and I, I think that it's just such a power and it's not a bad thing. I think about it today and it's like, man, that's awesome. Can I give you some of my problems? And <laughs> <laughs> well, well, when I talk about self-empowerment, which is, you know, a life-ring philosophy, I, I always tell the newbies that um, asking for help is self-empowerment deciding that you need help whether it's professional or friends or family or peer support groups that is a type of self-empowerment this is what i need this will this will assist me and for most people um the mutual support groups or for many people are really beneficial in their recovery and it is nice to sort of to talk to people who understand you you don't have to explain everything they've been there they know it you know there's a shorthand you can use and there's comfort in that especially in the early days you know I think the recovery community needs more thinkers like we are in the sense that whatever works works instead of shoving things down people's throat. Um, Cause I get frustrated with that all the time with even, even people that I work with that are stuck on the 12 steps. And I, I think we're doing a disservice to people. 
by doing that? I think it's dangerous. I mean, when they told me in in rehab that I had to accept the higher power or literally, or I was going to fail. This is what they told an atheist. I mean, I looked at them. Is this a good plan? You basically told me I'm going to fail on the first like day that I'm there. So it's dangerous to tell people that there's only one way. First of all, it's not true. So why would you say that? <laughs> it's not true. Don't say it. It's not yeah. true. Yeah. Um, but it can really um, it can interfere with people's odds of success if yeah. you tell them that they have to do something that isn't a good fit for them. Yeah, if you don't get a sponsor work steps, you go to meetings, you're going to get loaded. I mean, right. that's the <laughs> right. I think that is the worst thing you can tell somebody. I took them from a positive place. The 12 steps work for me. And here's what I found valuable. Maybe you will find this valuable too. Let me tell you about it. Like that's a very different approach than it's mandatory. You have to, you have no choice. This is the only way. What you just said is technically what they're doing, telling people, but they just don't know how to say it because people take it, you know, in the fashion of like, oh, they're just telling me all this crap. If you hear something from somebody that bothers you, just remember that they're just telling you what worked for them. That's it, you know, (laughs) and and because that's true. You know, they can't speak for other people. No, but there can be, you know, a lot of pressure to conform. I mean, I certainly was under a lot of pressure to conform and it's still true today. Sometimes people say, well, you can take what you need and leave the rest. And and that is true for the, the smaller points, but it's not really true for higher power, powerless, you know, sponsor, work the steps. There's core ideas. And, and the other reality is if those core ideas aren't, aren't things that I'm, you know, comfortable with, or that are a good fit for me, why would I try to you know, twist myself into fitting. It's just better to find a place that um, that fits me in a more comfortable way. And that is a philosophy that's more consistent with how I view the world. Is there something I haven't brought up that you want to mention? I don't think so. I mean, you know, my goals are always just to incur, you know, be open so people know that no matter where they are, they can succeed it, whether it's substance use disorder, usually with a combination. I, I mean, I'm not unique in having had child abuse and sexual assaults and all of these things. And I found my way out and I'm really not all that special. You know, you can too. Um, but also do be aware that there are the multiple options so that there's a space in the recovery community for everybody to find something that's going to be valuable for them if that's what they are looking for. Yeah, you're proof that you're not stupid and just a blown out tweaker that's, uh, that's right. has no brain left, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. But if you would have saw me when I was 30, you might have thought a little different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that is the powerful point, though, you know, yes. is that we can change. And I honestly find that most people, when they become them, when they become the person that they are, they are intelligent, they're smart, they are loving, they care about people. Um, and it's the opposite of what you think. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it, you know, I couldn't be those things even to myself, much less other people when my entire focus was on using it. Isn't that I didn't want to, or wouldn't have, if I could, it was beyond me. I was incapable. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it is sobriety opens us up to connecting in all ways. And, and it's just such, I just say, it's such a relief, you know, it's such a relief to not have to think about that all the time, to not be consumed with those thoughts. It's such a blessing. It really is. And the world's a lot bigger. Yes. Yes, you know? it is. I mean, like you're using the world's like that big, you know, and then you get clean and whole world out there. Moving forward, it does it does open up bit by bit and it keeps opening as you go along. Absolutely. I always ask this question for those out there struggling. What would you tell them? Um, I would tell them to, you know, try to find a sense of hope and just make the, the initial efforts. Right. I mean, don't recovery is a process. Don't expect immediate, you know, 100% abstinence that if you get that, that's great, but be realistic with yourself. Just focus on what's my right next step. What what next step is moving me in the direction I need to go? That's all you can do in any moment in time. Well, very cool. I want to thank you so much for doing this. Sure. Glad um, to be here. Yeah. It's great to have an ex-federal judge on, on, our, <laughs> on our show. <laughs> and uh, so... Yeah, everybody check out her book, um, um, From Junkie to Judge, and where can they find it? It's on Amazon and all the usual sites, or your local bookstore can order it for you. Perfect. I think it'd just be fun for a day to hit the gavel, you know?
Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of High Wall Clean. And as I always like to say, let's keep getting high, but let's do it clean. I'll see you soon.